Hip hop is about style. What style was to fashion is what lyrics are to music. You can't have one without the other. Diamond tennis necklaces. It was no holes barred. Cuban chains. Fearlessness. Kango fresh, super fresh. Do what you feel. Hip hop is about self-expression. It spoke to us. It spoke for us. It represented us. It was just that unique to where it wasn't just something that you just got off the rack. Gucci or Louis, but just a dapper dance fit. But most importantly, hip hop. It's about the culture. Clothes didn't drive the culture. Culture drove the clothes. The hip hop was bold and street, raw and uncut. MTV didn't dictate to us. We dictated to MTV. Hip hop is not something that you listen to. It's something you live. Whether you're Jamaican, African, African American, Caribbean, we about them colors, boy. Hip hop's takeover of fashion and culture in the '90s is a story of ingenuity, of passion, and of swagger. A genre of music birthed on the streets of New York gave rise to a culture, and the uniform of that culture soon clothed people around the world, on the streets, on television, in the movies, and soon on the runways and in the pages of Vogue. Welcome to In Vogue: The 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter, and I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor at large, and your host. In the 90s, on 125th Street in Harlem, there was a luxury boutique unlike any other that had existed before. Or since, Dapper Dan's boutique was famous, and Dapper Dan himself was an icon. He made a name for himself by remixing high fashion designs with Harlem streetwear style, and soon the New York City hip hop and rap scene put Dapper Dan's name out on an even bigger scale. Most of my clientele were street people, all hustlers or pimp daddies, basically a nightlife kind of people. You know I me. Mean? The boutique, a three-story building off Madison Avenue, was a small storefront with a yellow and white striped awning. Inside, jackets hung from walls. Some rendered in bright reds and yellows, others boasting iconic logos: Gucci, Louis Vuitton, Fendi, MCM. Dapper Dan's clientele wanted the luxury and status that came from the designer houses of high fashion, but too often found themselves on the outside looking in. In Dapper Dan, they found a translator who understood their lifestyles, the swagger of Harlem. I met Dap real early. I met Dap before I could, I could afford to buy something from Dap. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. I might be 17, 16, 17 years old. Hip hop artist LL Cool J. I would just be there watching them buy stuff and yo, yo, you know, daps like yo, yo, you know, two thousand this, three thousand that, and it's money exchanged and jackets is getting made and you know, yo, it'd be done at two in the morning, it'd be done at three in the morning. Dudes is picking jackets up three, four in the morning. So what I was doing at the time was creating logo mania. 
Logomania has come in and out of fashion before, but Dapper Dan wasn't just making copies, he was reimagining the look of the clothes. Like the full tracksuit covered in Louis Vuitton logos, he created new pieces you couldn't find on Madison Avenue. So I brought together how we like to look, right? And then I incorporated these luxury symbols into that same outfit, and it just blossomed from there. They were tailor-made, custom-fitted, and technically illegal. Dabadan took from high fashion to heighten the drama and luxury of his designs and made something new. And that was the essence of this new scene in New York. Hip-hop, a cultural phenomenon that introduced a new style to the world. But back in Dabadan's early days, hip-hop was just beginning. What we now call hip-hop started to percolate at New York block parties in the 70s. Musically, the term encompasses a wide variety of genres of black music, but its hallmarks are rapping and DJing. And as the scene grew, breakdancers and graffiti artists became just as important as the musicians. The whole culture came from a West Indian man, Cool Herc. Actor, dancer and activist Rosie Perez. It was a hodgepodge of all different ethnicities but primarily West Indian, African-American, and Puerto Rican, who didn't have access to the clubs or couldn't afford the clubs. Rosie Perez grew up in Brooklyn and Queens in the 60s and 70s. Perez choreographed the Fly Girls for the hit TV show In Living Color and for major hip-hop and R&B stars like LL Cool J and Bobby Brown. And so when you would go to a jam, meaning an outdoor party, you wanted to look as fly as possible because that was your identity. That was your calling card. Of course, hip-hop was inspired by sportswear, which was pioneered by designer Willie Smith within the fashion industry and who specialised in clothes made to be lived in. Willie and Dapper Dan were two sides of a coin. Willie working within the system, Dapper Dan outside of it. What he was doing uptown was extremely similar to what Willie Smith was doing downtown, but in very different way. Fashion historian Darnell Jamal Lisby. Uptown, he was merging luxury monograms with, you know, tracksuits or with silk shirts or the fur jacket or fur coat. He was merging those things and making them functional and fashionable. Style was essential, but it was also dictated by the requirements of the party. If you are breakdancing, you want to go do windmills and various other things like that. In the early 90s, entrepreneur Damon John started his clothing line, FUBU, out of his mother's house in Queens after noticing the potential to sell streetwear to young men. You can't have bell bottoms on or any kind of looseness on your pants, so you have to taper your pants. Hip-hop became a fusion of the aesthetics of sportswear, glorified hustlers and Afrocentrism, a movement that encouraged African pride for black Americans who were consistently force-fed images of crime and terror in their neighborhoods on the five o'clock news. Artists like A Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemy refuted those images, instead offering African prints, large enamel earrings with bright colors and traditional garments like dashikis Dapper Dan remembers his own experience with connecting to African roots. As a young man, he travelled to Liberia, where a chance encounter with a clothing vendor inadvertently set him on the path to fashion. He said, I like what you got on. I said, you do? I said, you want to trade? He said, yeah. I ran up into the hotel and brought back all my luggage with all my clothes, traded all my clothes for artifacts. And then I had uh, Fulani, who was living in Liberia, 
Monrovia, Liberia, I had them make me clothes. I said, I ain't going back like I came. I'm going back with what I went there to get. You follow what I'm saying? And he made me outfits and stuff. Dapper Dan wasn't just taking African garments home. He commissioned new pieces. They were European style with African flavor. That's who I am. That's who we black people in America are. We cannot deny the influence that being here in America has upon us. We had Queen Latifah, who, of course, really embodied this proud, Afrocentric, beautiful, take charge, female goddess. You know, she really was the queen. Monica Lynch is the former president of Tommy Boy Records, the label that produced artists like De La Soul, Africa Bambata and Queen Latifah. And she had come actually out of part of another scene called the Native Tongues Movement, which was De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest. And that started in the late 80s. And this was also sort of an Afrocentric type of visual vibe. Lots of African print shirts and leather pendants. And as the iconic hip-hop group Salt and Pepper points out, there was the big bold jewellery. Some went along with the Afrocentric themes. Some was just to flaunt. Remember nugget rings, gold nugget rings. This is Cheryl James, better known as Salt from Salt and Pepper. Like if you had like some, it wasn't no diamonds, it was nuggets. You had a nugget, you was doing the damn thing. Pep had a gold nugget ring. <laughs> and this is Sandy Denton. Pepper. Like with the gold earrings, of course, the big Dornaka earrings, you know, bamboo earrings. As hip-hop's cultural influence grew, hip-hop style and high fashion were about to collide. And you could hear it in the lyrics, like in this song from LL Cool J, Around the Way Go. I want a girl with extensions in her hair, bamboo earrings, at least two pair. We come from that. We're coming from African kings. We're coming from a culture of, of, of gold chains and jewelry. Hip-hop artist LL Cool J. When I went over to, you know, Grand Bassam, what used to be Grand Bassam, on the, what used to be the Ivory Coast, and Abidjan. When I was over in Abidjan, the kings and the elders of the village had gold around their necks. And as hip-hop flourished, the Afrocentric look and the luxury aesthetic were rising simultaneously in the styles of the most prominent African-American entertainers. The rappers. The rappers started being able to afford my clothes when they started getting deals with the record company. Dapper Dan again. Russell Simmons used to tell all his acts, get all his acts, and everybody, all the promoters together say, make sure you go to Dapper Dan's and get an outfit. By tapping into what the rappers wanted to wear and the image they wanted to evoke, Dapper Dan forged a new kind of celebrity identity and aesthetic. I looked at the Rat Pack and how they dressed and then I looked at what the street was doing. So I knew that I can formulate a look for hip hop, just like Sammy Davis Jr. and Frank Sinatra and all of them have formulated that. I'm going to create to go with these rap artists. You know, I'm going to give them a look of their own. The rappers flocked to Dapper Dan, and in turn, he helped create some of their most iconic looks. Like Eric B. and Rakam's leather jackets with their names emblazoned above interlocking Gucci G's, or Salt and Pepper's eight ball jackets. Eight ball jackets was the thing at the time and Play from Kid and Play had a leather store and he's also an artist. And so actually him and Herbie came up with the concept of the eight ball jacket. We took the design that Play and, and Herbie put together to Dapper Dan to construct the actual jacket. As Dapper Dan became synonymous with rappers, his shop started drawing attention and not always the welcome kind. 
Dapper Dan started getting court orders to raid his store from the fashion houses that noticed their logos being used. They would seize counterfeits to hold before trial. Every time the store was raided, Dapper Dan would rebuild. But after a series of raids, including one by a team of Fendi lawyers, led by now Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Dapper Dan would have to go underground. He would sell clothes all across the country out of his car for the next 20 years. But streetwear would pick up where Dapper Dan left off. You had some young entrepreneurs in different pockets throughout the United States who were paying attention to the street cues. Fashion historian and author Elena Romero. You had Carl Kanai, who was Costa Rican born, who was raised in Brooklyn, who would later move to Cali to really launch his brand. Carl Jones, who had a surf background. You had April Walker, who created Walkerwear in Brooklyn. Inspired by Dapper Dan, April Walker opened her store Fashion in Effect in Brooklyn and would soon help to pioneer the baggy aesthetic that would become prominent in hip hop. I created more legroom. I lowered the crotch because that was a complaint I was hearing because prior to this, men were wearing Calvin Klein jeans. So we were coming out of that Lee stage, that Calvin Klein, that Levi, and we were going into baggy. And I was one of those leaders to create that aesthetic. Their pioneering looks were entirely separate from the mainstream fashion world, but they came to define hip hop. And in turn, hip hop and streetwear fashion began to drive their own cultural ecosystem. You started having publications like Word Up and Rap Masters. Yo! MTV Raps launched in 1988. Monica Lynch. It was becoming a real industry. Our places of reference were those publications. That's where we saw our icons, our celebrities. Author Elena Romero. In a space where they were being respected and documented, right? And alongside representation in magazines came representation on the runway. You've got to give credit to the category for the infusion of more black and brown supermodels and models in general on the runway and how we viewed the concept of beauty. Prior to urban fashion, our viewpoint of beauty was stemming from a white gaze. With the introduction and the explosion of urban fashion, that meant the model that was on the runway, the clothing brand, how we tricked it and styled it, how we used accessories. So the body or the shape of the supermodel was different. We're seeing bald men, different shades, light skin, dark skin, thick skin, big booties, Every type of body shape that you can imagine is now common and normal on the runway. Oh my God, Becky, look at her butt. That representation took its cues from hip-hop. Sir Mix-a-Lot's 1992 hit, Baby Got Back, for example, became an anthem for women of colour who didn't fit Eurocentric standards of beauty. Okay. I mean, her butt, it's just so... I thought that what that was saying, what the fashion industry was saying to African-American women was you need to assimilate to what we call beautiful or suffer the consequences. And I wanted to write Baby Got Back in a wink, wink, nod, nod way. And people would like it because I'm, it's, it sounds like a fun song about butts. But people in the know would be like, that's what I'm talking about. I'm tired of magazines saying flat butts are the thing. Take the average black man and ask him what? 
the it girl in hip hop was the round the way girl. Girls were gonna have the you know tight jeans on, the, you know skin tight jeans with, with the cute little logo belt with the, the either the thigh high boots or the knee high boots with the bow legged stance with the baby hair popping with the earrings. But as the newest genre of music grew and became a self sustaining industry, mainstream brands sought to capitalize on all the noise. So Tommy Hilfiger had Andy Hilfiger going to the rap clubs and giving out jackets. And that's when the shift started. That's when the brand started paying attention. The, the very smart thing that Tommy Hilfiger did was have his brother Andy Hilfiger sort of act as a, an ambassador for the brand. He was out there lacing all the key hip-hop acts with the Hilfiger gear. Nobody was doing that. And the music, with all of its attendant cultural signifiers, crossed over into a different sector, bringing in young white suburbanites. I remember I did a concert in Maine, and it was the first time that hip-hop had ever been to Maine. And it was the first time that these little white kids had ever seen hip-hop, period. Not only were they listening to these hip-hop artists, they wanted to dress like them, too. You see the Beatles. No black kids was running around looking like the Beatles. You know what I mean? And no white kids was running around looking like the Temptations. Now here you got a new music where these two different dynamic groups is coming together and they're dressing alike. And soon, luxury brands began to adopt the hip-hop aesthetic as well. Karl Lagerfeld was known for looking to hip-hop and R&B divas like Salt and Pepper and TLC for fashion cues. You could see hip-hop influences in his 1991 ready-to-wear collection. Singer Monica recalls what it was like to work with him when she first started out. The greatest experiences for me in the early stages of my career was just being his muse for a week and trying on the different things that he felt fit my body and seeing what it was really like for, you know, women that were built like I was. It was such an honor because when you come from where I come from, you're constantly told what's not possible and what you can't do. As luxury brands began to start sending hip-hop-inspired looks down the runway, one fashion house in particular took it to the next level by putting one of the biggest hip-hop artists in the world on the runway. More when we come back from the break. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford. And we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Tupac was starting to do to be successful. Fashion designer Donatella Versace. So I call and I ask him to come to perform during a one-man show in Milan, in Via Gesù, 
convinced that you say no, but he say yes. So now no, wait, wait, I had to tell to Gianni after. I did before. I had no permission at all to do that. So I had to find a way to say, Gianni, to pack is a right. Who? Gianni says. So I told you a little bit to pack. It was 1996 and he came, it was amazingly good looking. And then he performed um, California Love. All the audience went crazy, model included, they stopped walking, they were looking at him with a stage up in the hair in Via Gesù. It was a huge, huge success. He was so happy. That runway show spawned a love affair between hip-hop and Versace that remains till this day. It was impossible to turn on the radio and not hear the brand get a shout-out in hip-hop songs. I'm plucking your Versace shape. What's it's all about Versace? You copy my style? Versace, gold links, stomach chains, Verace. Uh, you got me, I rock the Versace and Linux. Miami, D.C. prefer Versace. Most memorably, Biggie Smalls and Sean Combs donned silky Versace shirts adorned with the iconic Medusa emblem in their video for Hypnotize. And later... Versace started dressing women in hip-hop like Missy Elliott for the red carpet. I remember Donatella wanting to style me and she put me in a razor blade suit. <laughs> and i never forget it. It's a purple razor blade suit. I wore it at one of those awards. And I think because I was so out there, as for just being myself, really, it allowed her to say, hey, I know the perfect person that I could put this suit on. In 1999, Donatella dressed Lil' Kim for the Met Gala in a bold hot pink two-piece, a floor-length fur coat, snakeskin boots and a pink wig to match. But even as the mainstream fashion world was beginning to incorporate hip-hop's aesthetics, one brand in particular was pushing hip-hop fashion forward within its own communities. We would go out and we would go and buy other designers. And a lot of those designers were taking our money saying, we don't like you. We don't like hip-hop kids. We don't like African-Americans. I remember going home and coming up with a name, FUBU, For Us, By Us. A lot of people initially thought it was about a color, but it was about a culture. Team FUBU. Team FUBU. It started out as a concept, just a concept. And look at what it is now. Damon John had started to work his streetwear brand around the same time other brands were picking up. Creating a factory in his mother's house in Hollis, Queens, he would shop his clothes out to different video sets, trying to get his brand seen any way he could. Luckily, a special person from the neighbourhood took notice. LL Cool J lives in my neighbourhood. I don't know him that well. We go over to LL Cool J's house. We knock on the door, ask him, can he wear our shirt? We find out he's moving to California. He says, I'll wear your shirt. And I said, can I take a picture of you? And he said, yeah, but if you ever get anywhere, and I promise you won't, you take care of me. LLQJ puts my shirt on. As soon as he's getting in the car, I take the picture. Bang! I nail that picture. Picture comes out when I develop it a month later. He's looking perfect in that picture. I look at all the stores that are competitive stores. I don't have money to go to those stores. So what happens? Well, they all go to some trade show called the Magic Show in Las Vegas. It's held two times a year. I make 300 copies of that picture. And I mail it to every store that I find. They're selling Timberland, Alessi, Lecoq Sportif, uh, Fila, Lee's, Levi's. Carhartt, and I write on it. You've seen it in the videos. The kids have been asking for it. And Fubu's just signed his first multi-million dollar deal with LL Cool J, and we will be at the magic show. So he went, and he, you know, he did something, and, and finally he made a shirt that I thought was cool. And they hung outside my house, and I was like, "Yo, what's up?" And I just felt like, you know what? Why not get these young brothers a shot? 
They from the hood, they trying to do something. They seem aggressive, they seem focused, they seem committed. I throw the shirt on. They gave me a little piece of the company and, you know, the rest is history. Not only did LL Cool J become the official spokesperson for the company, he pulled one of the biggest advertising coups of the decade. Fashion historian and author Elena Romero again. LL Cool J becomes approached by The Gap to participate in one of their Fall into the Gap campaigns. He lets them know off the top that he's very much interested. However, he is contracted to be a spokesperson for FUBU. Apparently, The Gap negotiates and is fine with LL Cool J wearing a Carolina Blue FB cap in the commercial that is recorded. He not only is in this 30-second commercial, but he writes the copy for the commercial in itself, which is a freestyle rap. Cleverly enough, LL inserts the historic line, the gap is for us, by us, on the low. GAP gritty, ready to go for us, by us, on the low. G, that's what getting the, the commercial game. becomes historic on two fronts. One, we have never seen an apparel company give free commercial space to another brand. And second, somebody wasn't minding the store because LL just sneaked in a phenomenal message, a message that would only be interpreted by those in the know. Anyone not, it would go over their head. Unbeknownst to them, they just gave a free national TV commercial to FUBU. First of all, they fired everybody that worked on that campaign. But new management came in and they realized the target market they were trying to hit increased 300% because the kids thought they can get FUBU at the cap. We all kissed and made up and they spent another $30 million re-airing that ad. It ain't gonna hurt them. They're gonna get what they want. But I should help my dudes too. In essence, Elk Elk understood the power of his celebrity, the power of his brand, and the power of brand association. And he outsmarted a status brand into giving an urban brand a leg up. The visibility that LL Cool J gave FUBU showed how powerful imagery could be. And no visual was more potent than the music videos. Well, here in New York, Pre-MTV, the place that we got our cues from was absolutely Ralph McDaniel's video music box. Hi, I'm DJ Ralph McDaniel's and... uh, Writer Elena Romero. Whose show was on the air from the mid-80s around 84 till about 96 or so on WNYC television, Channel 31 in New York. And kids like myself, when came out of school at 3 o'clock, we would take over our parents' television set at 3.30 to watch the show that would give us an inside look to the music videos, the concerts, the park jams, the one-on-one interviews, because no one was doing that. MTV jumps on the hip-hop craze much, much later. You know, listen, the goal for us was that How do we get MTV to play black music? Hip-hop stylist and costume designer June Ambrose. How do we get VH1 to play black music? These are two, like, really pop culture video outlets. It was beyond BET. If you made it to any of those streams, then you were considered, you know, a a crossover artist. And, you know, many... And just preparing for what that would look like. To achieve that crossover, it took the keen eye of a visionary like video director Hype Williams. How do you go about getting that? 
that access took really creative, you know, creatives like Hype Williams, director Hype Williams, who were, you know, really, you know, making groundbreaking music videos that didn't feel just like black gangster music videos. They were cinematic mini films. And you really got to flex, you know, your creative chops. The fashion on display in these music videos often came from the artists themselves. Take salt and pepper. For those little fashion on Jamaica Avenue for us, <laughs> going to shop and to make it in our, we bought like our outfits from there was in the shoot video. <laughs> you know, I, that was about Jamaica Avenue out there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We just did what we felt. You know, we didn't have stylists at that point. <laughs> like everybody's paying all this money for stylists now, but back then it was way more organic. And like Pep said, you know, just making it up as we go along. And for Destiny's Child, Kelly Rowland remembers Tina Knowles creating all of their early iconic looks by hand. We were gluing rhinestones on and burning the hell out of our fingers, but it didn't even matter because, you know, we were stoned up, gemmed up and uh, handkerchiefed up. Destiny's Child wasn't on the radar for designers at the time. So Tina Knowles, mother, of course, of Beyonce Knowles, literally took matters in her own hands. I remember there were designers that didn't want to dress Destiny's Child uh, for a long while, and they were either like, no, or they didn't get what we were doing, and they it was some that just didn't want to dress a couple of black girls, southern black girls. I remember she didn't really want to like tell us, like, why or anything like that it was just like well we'll be creative you know what i mean if we don't have you know what the industry probably might think is the end thing to do we'll make the end thing and that's exactly what tina did and big boy of outcast remembers the group designing their stage looks dre would draw sketches of like oh man i'm about to get these pants made made out of feathers and She's like, okay, then uh, what, what you gonna do? So I said, well, I'm, I'm gonna get a little, I'm gonna make a, a, a throwback kind of shirt, but I'm, I'm gonna put the V-neck on it and I'm gonna put some rabbits around the neck, you know, had like a seamstress from the church that was making clothes for us. Like say we wanted some track pants. Before track pants even came out, we were like, hey, can you make us some some track pants with some daisies on the side or uh, uh, put some roses um, on the knee, knees of the, of the pants where it was just that unique to where it wasn't just something that you just got off the rack. But eventually, as the rapper's stars rose, stylists entered the scene. Two women who got their start at Uptown Records would change hip-hop by elevating rappers' looks to art. June Ambrose and Misa Hilton. June was responsible for Sean Combs and Maze's instantly iconic shiny red suits in Hype Williams' Mo Money Mo Problems video. I found the fabric and I said, Hype, I want to use this fabric. It's so carnival. It's like, you know, it's metallic leather. It looks like something like Bootsy Collins would use, a Mick Jagger. It's so rocker, but I want to do it in a, in a hip-hop sporty silhouette. Jean jacket, baggy pants, you know, jogger jacket. My whole thing back then was taking athletic leisure wear and reproducing it in luxury leather and suede fabrics and things that elevated the concept, but still let the artists feel like they were still in their element. Who knew at the time that it was like really a brilliant idea? But I just knew that I wanted to create this sense of regality and a sense of, you know, worthiness and wealth without taking them outside of their comfort zone. And she styled Missy Elliott for her solo debut, The Rain, Super Duper Fly, 
where Missy donned a shiny vinyl blow-up suit. You know, the blow-up suit was, you know, scripted in the treatment as kind of like a Michelin man. And I thought, oh, God, we can't put, a, you know, this beautiful brown girl in a white marshmallow suit. June is just like, okay, well, look, I'm going to do this blow-up suit that you want. So we got in the blow-up suit when we realized we needed to put air in it. So we had to go to the gas station and they blew me up with the pump at the gas station to only find out I couldn't fit in the car. So we had to walk back to, <laughs> to the set in Brooklyn on a main street. <laughs> so can you imagine I'm in this blow-up suit walking in Brooklyn back in 1997. <laughs> and while June Ambrose was pushing artistic boundaries for one woman in hip-hop, Misa Hilton was getting another into more sexy, hyper-feminine looks, styling Lil' Kim in videos like Crush On You. Little Kim the Queen Bee, so you best take heed. Lance on Rivera came up with the concept and his inspiration was The Wiz which became my inspiration. And so he wanted to do monochromatic looks from that scene in The Wiz. And so I just brought it to life, Little Kim style. So of course I had to have the minks and the jewelry and the colored wigs to get to the next level. And that was something that had never been done before. Misa was also styling other uptown artists like Jodeci and Mary J. Blige, but her looks for Lil' Kim were all about taking risks and pushing the envelope. Kim was fly on her own and us coming together and co-creating just took things to a new level because we understood each other. Misa went on to create the jaw-dropping outfit Lil' Kim would wear to the 1999 MTV Music Video Awards, a purple mermaid-like suit and matching sequin pasty. It actually was an idea that Missy Elliott had. One day I was hanging out with her at her studio and she said, you know what, Misa, Kim is so fly out the box that she could just, she could just, if I was Kim, I would just have my whole titty out. That's how fly Kim is. If I was, I would do some something crazy like that. And so I took that idea and I saved it. I was like, hmm, that got me to thinking like, damn, how could, how could you do that? How could I bring that to life? So that was the seed. That was a Missy Elliott idea that I took and turned it into the VMAs look. The stylists helped hip-hop reach unprecedented fashion heights, and the rap stars of the 90s soon became as big as rock stars from decades before. So it, this is kind of rock star persona. No matter what genre of music you're in, you still kind of want to feel, you know, as um, age-defying and climactic and, 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 and iconic at all times. So how do you build an icon? You establish what it is that you're going to be, and then you're consistently doing that. But these new stars also brought new entrepreneurial spirit. They didn't just want to look the part. Stars like Sean Combs wanted to own the look. He loved the idea of, you know, uh, for us, by us. And Sean John was born off of the back of that concept. It was, you know, the idea that he saw a void and he wanted to fill it. And it was also like, you know, he had had such a voice. Musicians and entrepreneurs like Jay-Z and Def Jam's Russell Simmons were venturing out and creating their own lines. 
Kimora Lee Simmons, one of Karl Lagerfeld's modern muses and then wife of Russell, launched her own line, Baby Fat, in 1999. But Combs in particular had a keen fashion eye. I took Puffy to his first fashion show. I know, it's crazy. And it was like leading a fish to water. And I believe it was an honest Swiss show. I remember bringing Puffy to the show with me one time, but it was like bringing someone to a party and then they start jetting off and they're already, you know, the person who's like, oh my God, there's so-and-so, there's so-and-so. Combs knew his eye was good and he knew he could turn himself from hip-hop star to hip-hop mogul. He launched his own line, Sean John, in 1998, and soon after, the label had its own shows in New York Fashion Week. It was the ticket to have, you know. If you went to a Sean John runaway show, especially at Cipriani's, I'll never forget that night. It was a big deal. And for him to make the statement of all black models on the runway, that was a huge statement because you want a crossover brand. You know, they all wanted the brand to feel like Ralph Lauren. Everybody wanted to be Ralph Lauren. You know, that was the goal. I want to have the business that Ralph Lauren has. And to make a statement that we're, well, if you have all black models, are you alienating other consumers? But you, I think it was the fact that he, you know, we all knew at the time that the influence was so strong that we didn't necessarily, the same way a Tommy Hilfiger and all those other, and a Ralph Lauren, they market to their consumer and got us as consumers that we could do the same. Diddy would be featured in a Vogue magazine spread shot by Annie Leibovitz with Kate Moss in the October 1999 issue. The feature was called Puff Takes Paris, where he appeared alongside high fashion designers Jean-Paul Gaultier, Karl Lagerfeld, Oscar de la Renta and John Galliano. But the success of Diddy's Sean John cannot be understood without the pioneers of the genre. Without Dapper Dan infusing his take on luxury in the streets of Harlem, without the same innovators of Willyware, Cross Colors, Carl Canai. Jeff Tweedy, uh, who obviously is the CEO of Sean John and developed Sean John, and he was before that with uh, Carl Canai, he worked for Willie Smith during the mid-1980s. So, you know, there's definite, like, connections and links between what Willie Smith was doing and then what, you know, that urban streetwear movement really kind of came about. The styles innovated by these artists have had lasting impact. The distressed denim we see now in every store can be traced back directly to salt and pepper. To see that come to pass in future fashion and these huge, huge fashion designers, you know, selling them, you know, and putting their names to that style. It's amazing. And you don't get the athleisure wear we see today without the streetwear of the 90s. 2020, you know, when you go onto Instagram and you watch the great unboxing of the newest Ivy Park collection uh, or the new Fenty line, it's, you know, where these are artists who have who now have ownership stakes and you know have global stages and you know this is huge money a lot of the brands didn't know that they were going to create this mega category that would become an international phenomenon what we're seeing now is the road and the blueprint that men have paved traditionally and male hip-hop celebrities have paid are now the blueprint 
that the women can now use. I think now with enough time in the business, learning from our mistakes is the right time now for the hip hop female celebrity to really take ownership of the iconic brands that they are. Even Dapper Dan himself is back. Starting in 2017, the couturier partnered with Gucci for a new collection based on looks he designed in the 80s and 90s. Hip-hop wasn't just a genre of music. It was a cultural phenomenon that swept the world. It was music, art, lifestyle and fashion. Hip-hop was born of a great mix of influences and in turn remixed the culture of the world around it. From its music to its art, but especially its fashion, hip-hop changed the way we dress and how we think about glamour, style and image. It changed what it looked like to be at the top of the world. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, Tarka Zen and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Waltz. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsi, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue. Hey, friends. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful superfans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts.